Today, on the deep end, I'm going to discuss the difference between passive and active persecution in the church. Are we being persecuted or are we not? Plus, it's book review time. I'm talking today about Vody Bakum's new book called Fault Lines. You're not going to want to miss that discussion as he discusses the fastest growing cult in America. It's called, in his words, anti-racism cult. And in the life of David, we come to one of the most powerful uses of one's privilege in all of the scriptures. This is your favorite night of the week, whether you believe it or not. Welcome to the Deep End with Tim Hatch. I am beloved, the man they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John that slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to the Deep End with Tim Hatch. Oh, thank you so much for being here tonight, 7.30 p.m. on Tuesdays. And I am Tim Hatch. I am the host of this program. And every week we gather to discuss the world we live in and all of its craziness and the, the scriptures and all of their clarity. Okay, this is episode 21 of season, cha- season four in the deep end. And I want to make sure that you like and subscribe over at the, te- the deep end YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the deep end TV. Please give us a like right there, right below me right now. Give us a like, please, right there. Give us the like and the subscribe. And then also click that little notification bell. And that way you get notified as to when you are, we are on online. You can do, do get your notification right to your phone right there. Um, make sure that you go to our social media media accounts. Welcome to everybody who listening on radio, uh, listening in Russia. We have got some listeners in Russia. Can you believe that? We've got listeners all over the world and the country, and I'm so glad that you have joined us. But get on our social media pages, follow, like, do the whole thing. Um, I'm glad that you're here. This is the new time for the deep end, 730 p.m. Do you like 7.30? Is it better for you with the little ones? You got to get them fed, get them in bed and all that kind of stuff. Let me know in the comments below if you like the 7.30 hour much better. Also, let me know where you're watching from and hit the like, hit the like button. Uh, There is some swag on our deep end uh, website that's at thedeepend.tv. Thedeepend.tv. You can pick up one of those. That is a tumbler. I have one right here in my possession. It makes everything taste so much better. The beard scientifically proven to improve the taste of all your favorite beverages. Now, I'm going to do something. I'm going to actually offer you one of these tumblers. Those of you who watch on the Deep End YouTube channel. So uh, that again is what channel? That again is uh, the Deep End uh, YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the deep end TV. And if you are on there and you are commenting below, going to give you a chance to get your hands on one of these for free. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the shelf of shame. Here's the shelf of shame right now. And you can see that we have still added some more things up on the shelf of shame. In fact, today we added three items to the shelf of shame. There are three new items on the shelf of shame. And if you can let me know below in the comments, what are the three items? Kind of hard to see one of them, but what are the three items that we added this week? So you're going to have to uh, go Back to last week's episode. Don't do that now. (laughs) Maybe that was not a good idea. Don't do that right now. Uh, But uh, let us know in the comments, maybe after the show is over, what are the three new uh, items on the shelf of shame? One more look at it here. The shelf of shame, three new items. Which ones are they? Let me know in the comments below. That's it. No more looking. Okay. And if you are right, we're going to, the first person that's right is going to get one of these for free mailed to you. 
the deep end tumbler. Yes. We like to give things away here on the deep end. So make sure you're playing along. It's fun. It's great. And I also want to ask you to do me a favor. Like, uh, let me know how the deep end helps you on your favorite podcast app, especially on Apple Podcasts. Now, I've been getting some good reviews on Apple Podcasts. Most of them are five-star reviews, but there's one uh, one-star, two-star review here from someone called Irish American Dynasty. And I'm kind of hurt by this. He says it's not his favorite night of the week. Uh, yes, it is, <laughs> Mr. Irish American. Yes, it is your favorite night of the week. Of course, it was over a year old here. I, no, not over a year old. It was several months old, seven months old. Um, but many positive reviews, such as this from LVNXM. I think that's Larissa. Uh, she's enjoyed the teachings of Pastor Tim. Uh, relates the Bible to 21st century lives. Doesn't compromise or water down. Thank you so much, LVN. And then Brickett, Brickett. Hanny T, whoever that is, uh, left this review one year ago. Absolutely exceptional preacher. Thank you so much. Uh, this The message and content that he delivers is far above any message I've heard thus far online. The honest truth straight from the Bible. Quoting God's word is a must listen to a blessing of a podcast. Thank you so much. And then also this one from Sue Trom. I think Sue Trombley. Hi, Sue. Without a doubt, the best preaching I've heard since Billy Graham. Whoa. Oh man, thank you so much. Uh, Tim preaches and straight. Uh, Tim preaches and teaches straight, straight from the Bible. Doesn't sugarcoat things, even if they aren't always politically correct. Yes, Sue, and that is very appropriate for today's episode. Thank you so much for your reviews, guys. Leave us a review on the podcast app if you could do that for me. You can even do that now while you watch. Leave us a review on the podcast app, Apple Podcast app, or wherever you listen to uh, this podcast or this show. Um, but most importantly, thank you for liking and subscribing the video down here below on YouTube dot com slash the deep end tv okay uh it is time for my favorite segment of the deep end every time we gather together it is time for deep end news deep end news the news you choose if you could choose news is the church being persecuted that is the question today on the deep end is the church being persecuted and we have to ask this question because what we see in modern america and canada and some european countries is what i would refer to as passive persecution passive persecution is when the country doesn't come out and take your rights away and doesn't come out and take your lives or in jail you although that that is now starting to happen in westernized countries. Passive persecution is they find ways to put pressure on your religious convictions and practices. And that is actually uh, 100% what's happening in, in the West. Uh, in the East, it's active persecution. And so that's when they lock you up, throw you in jail, slaughter your family. And that's happened throughout church history for 2,020 years. Since Jesus rose and ascended to the Father, the church has been persecuted in one way or another. Every time someone is persecuted, by the way, in the church for the name of Christ, they are actually being—the the persecutors don't even realize—they're actually proving the Bible is correct. They're proving that Jesus was 100% spot on. They're proving what Revelation was all about, that there is going to be an outcry against those who have faith in Christ. There's going to be hatred and animosity for those who have Christ— who love Christ until the day he returns. And so in passive persecution, Western culture, uh, bake the cake for the gays or they're coming after you with a lawsuit, um, shut down your church for COVID-19. And if you don't comply, we're going to throw your pastor in jail. We're going to put three fences up around your church, Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. It's getting more and more ostentatious in the West. But, uh, and, and just as an example, actually, I want to show you something here. There's um, a court ruling now that has granted that uh, the, the province of Alberta does not have to show evidence for the health order that they imposed on um, 
Pastor James Coates' church, Grace Life Church in, in Canada. So this from the ChristianPost.com. Uh, I'm going to read the first paragraph. A Canadian court a Canadian court ruled earlier this week that the government of Alberta will not be required to show evidence, scientific evidence, sorry, scientific evidence backing up its COVID-19 restrictions during the upcoming trial of Pastor James Coates, who was arrested and jailed for holding in-person worship gatherings. Okay, why not? Why not? Why don't they have to show scientific evidence for the lockdowns and the mandates? Isn't that what the lockdowns and mandates were established upon? Scientific, it's science, follow the science. I mean, isn't that what it was all about? Follow the, follow the science. Now they don't even have to show the scientific evidence for their lockdowns and mandates in court. Do you see? Do you see the double standard? This is called passive persecution. Now the courts are on the side of the government in this case. Uh, and, and this is going to be just more and more of the same as we see science being shelved for personal uh, political opinion, actually. This is in um, the United States from the AP, Associated Press. The title of the article is, Asks, As Mask Mandates End, Oregon Bucks Trend with Permanent Rules. So this is insane. A top health official, this is from the article in the AP, a top health official is considering indefinitely extending rules regarding masks and social distancing in all businesses in the state. The proposal would keep the rules in place until they're no longer necessary to address the effects of the pandemic in the workplace. Now, now you've read the article. The problem is down lower in the article, it says, this this line, this is a great line, okay? Uh, they're never going to tell you when that they have met that necessity to remove the mask and social distancing mandates. Okay, this is a direct quote. Here it is. Quote, government officials won't say how low Oregon's COVID cases have to get or how many people would have to be vaccinated to get the requirements lifted in a state that's already had some of the nation's strictest safety measures. <laughs> so that is just kind of that is just kind of humorous. Okay, so Oregon's like, uh, we're imposing these mandates forever until the cases are low enough. Okay, well, when are the cases low enough? Uh, we don't want to tell you that. That's basically what they're saying. This is nanny state stuff. This is exactly what um, is growing in the uh, cultural West, always talking about the cultural West, uh, it is called passive persecution, ways in which they are hindering and pressuring churches and really people and taking away their freedoms and, lim and, and liberties uh, very subtly, very passively, and it is growing. And so, yes, the church in, the, in, in our world is being passively persecuted, but the church in the Far East is being demonstratively or actively persecuted. Okay, this is uh, out of India, and I want to show you this article from the Christian Post here. This is the story uh, in India, family beaten, forced into home confinement for converting to Christianity. Check that out. What what a news article, right? And this is still happening in the Eastern world, okay? I always talk about the Western world because that's where I live, but in the Eastern world, more and more active and demonstrative persecution. First paragraph of this article, quote, a Christian family in an indigenous community in Eastern India was beaten and forced to remain confined in their home for months after converting to Christianity and were subsequently charged by police for breaching the peace and public tranquility. So they are on lockdown for coming to Christ. And what we're going to see here, this is kind of interesting, right? Because this is the East meets West, like Rocky Four, right? East meets West, and they're coming together. And lockdowns for coming to Christ in India, lockdowns from your church in America and Canada, and this is kind of interesting. And so passive persecution, kind of catching up with active persecution, this is nothing new. This is this is nothing new for the movement of Jesus. This is nothing that we're going to hem and haw about. We're just going to address it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to tell you that it's happening because I don't want you to be ignorant here on the deep end. The deep end exists to give you news that you choose if you could choose news, right? So we're 
We're telling you this because we want you to be aware of it and not ignorant of the fact that this world is governed by the God of this world, the devil. And he is turning up the pressure left, right, and center on those who would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You got to be ready for it. You got to be strong for it. And you've got to press on through it. It is nothing new. And here's the best part. Here's the best part. God has an amazing way of getting glory out of the suffering of his people, the the persecution and the hatred and the animosity of his people. It's just incredible. I want to put a uh, uh, verse of scripture on the screen for you. It's from 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. It says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, Paul speaking here to Timothy, verse 9, for which I am suffering bound with chains, love this, okay, look, bound with chains as a criminal, but... Good news, the Word of God is not bound. The Word of God is never bound. We might be bound. We might go on lockdown. We might have restrictions. We might have freedoms taken from us. But God's Word somehow, through all of that, explodes. Let me give you statistical proof. So I went over to Grace Life Church's YouTube channel and I was, uh, I've been, you know, following the story, and you've been following the story with me on the on the deep end for several weeks about Grace Life Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So before the um, the co- the uh, imprisonment of their pastor James Coates, their messages on YouTube were getting maybe three to four hundred views uh, before all this happened. And now, if you go over to their YouTube channel, <laughs> you can see that their view, their messages are getting almost a hundred thousand views each. A hundred thousand views on YouTube for this little church of maybe about five, six hundred people in Edmonton, Alberta, is getting a hundred thousand views every week of their messages. I can't tell you how exciting I excited I am for that. How cool I think that is because what it shows you is that the gospel message is being heard more through Grace Life because of their persecution and because of the passive persecution and because of the government restrictions and lockdowns than it was getting when they had their freedoms. So the restrictions come down and God's word is not bound. Amen. The, the restrictions come down or, or go up and the word of God goes out. And I think you've got to remember that, that God has a history of doing this, using what the devil intended for evil for our good, the saving of many lives. And, and I wonder out of all those hundreds of thousands of people that are watching Grace Life's YouTube channel now, I'm sure a lot of them are Christians. I'm sure maybe you went there or other people who are talking about this church's situation went to their YouTube channel. But how many didn't know Christ who went to that channel? How many people are now tuning in to what this pastor has to say, who they locked up and who they fenced up his church? How many who don't know Christ are listening? And and I love it because James Coates is preaching the gospel like crazy every single week now. Uh, last week's message was all about the gospel. So go watch it because he's just telling you this is what the gospel is. And how many people are hearing for the very first time that this is what the church is about? The church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about politics. It's not about COVID. It's not about lockdowns. It's about Jesus. God's word. Mm is never bound. Amen, everybody. All right. Are you are you clear on that? Are we all good with that? Because that is probably the most important thing that we can talk about in Deep End News. Okay. Uh, hey, give me, a, a, do me a solid, everybody. If you're watching 
online, uh, if you're listening, wherever you are, support The Deep End. Go to thedeepend.tv slash give, thedeepend.tv slash give, or the Cash App. The cash tag is The Deep End TV or PayPal. And then also, if you just check me out on Twitter, I post a lot of these news items already onto my Twitter feed. Follow me there. Would love to have some interaction online that way. Um, we are going to do a brand new segment of the deep end today and i'm really excited about this got a new video intro for it. it's called the deep end book review segment let's go there okay fault lines by dr vody bacham jr he is a theologian a pastor a missionary uh he has been living in africa for the last five years uh on mission endeavors the subtitle of the book is The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. And so let me just talk about the title here. The fault line idea here is that social justice and uh, critical race theory um, is creating this fault line that's going to fracture the evangelical church, the evangelical church. And I, I think more and more people are starting to either despise the term evangelical get away from the term evangelical or or strongly stay beholden to the term evangelical. I'm not a big fan of holding on to evangelical for my title. I, I'm just a Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching Christian. That's what I am. I believe the Bible is 100% true. I believe it's the Word of God. I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you want to call me an evangelical, fine. I don't care. But here's the thing. There is in the subculture of evangelicalism a fault line developing, and it is being developed through social justice— this is according to the book from Vody Bakum, Fault Lines, through social justice and critical race theory. And rarely have I been blown away by a book as much as I have by this one. Um, this book should be read by every Christian struggling to reconcile the age of social justice with the gospel. Every single Christian should be reading this book, uh, Social Justice and the Gospel. How do we reconcile critical race theory, how do we reconcile all these things that we hear uh, in our world and our culture about, you know, um, the, 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 the division between black and white or, or white and people of color? And how do we reconcile what the messaging of those movements are with the message, the message of the Bible? Okay, this is going to be a question that we're going to have to answer more and more and more as time goes on. And of course, Vody has the right to speak to this issue and I hate to say this, it's unfortunate I have to say this, but it's because he's black and he is going to be listened to far more than me. It's just a fact, it's where we are in this cultural moment. In fact, even as I start to talk about these issues, I guarantee you that there's going to be people who are listening to me right now and your inclination is going to be say inside your head, you're white and you have no right to talk about this. Um, that itself is a racist view, okay? For, for anyone to say, because you are this, you have no right to speak truth or to talk about facts is a racist view. Uh, we have got to get back to what Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed about. Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed that one day his children would be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. But it seems like the more we champion his movement, civil rights, the less we believe his message of content of character, not color of skin, being the judgment for someone's personhood. That's just a fact couple highlights from the book that I want to get to right, in, right, right off the bat. He talks about the new religious cult of critical race theory. He calls it a cult. <laughs> 
now, now, before we get to his critique, uh, we need to get to the definition of critical race theory. And I just want to do this real quick, so stay with me, because this is, this is not necessarily in the book exactly, but it is important that you understand what the terminology refers to when we say critical race theory. Maybe you've never even heard of it. Some people call it CRT. It's being imposed in uh, education. It's, uh, there's a huge part of uh, Joe Biden's budget that's going to go toward uh, putting critical race theory in almost every aspect of American life through government imp implementation. So you need to be aware that your children are going to go to school and they're going to hear about this theory. They're going to hear about these lessons and they're going to be taught these truths or not these truths, these ideas more and more. And you're going to have to learn how to wrestle with them in accordance with scripture. So here's the definition that I found. Critical race theory is a modern approach to social change developed from the broader critical theory, which developed out of Marxism. Critical race theory approaches issues such as justice, racism, and equality with a specific intent on of reforming or reshaping society and practices applied almost exclusively to, to the United States. Uh, and this is actually from gotquestions.org. I'd highly suggest you read the article there at gotquestions.org. But, but here's what it says. Critical race theory is grounded on several key assumptions. So these are the main ideas is the main points of critical race theory. Number one, American government, law, culture, and society are inherently and inescapably, inescapably racist. Number two, everyone, even those without racist views, perpetuates racism by supporting those structures. Uh, they call that complicity. You would have heard over the summer during the, the summer riots, silence is violence. So if you don't post the black square, if you don't uh, say something, you are part of the problem. It's called complicity. Robin D'Angelo is making a fortune traveling around the country, this white woman who wrote a book called White Fragility, uh, traveling around the country telling everybody, you are never not racist. That's basically what she says. You are never not racist. So <laughs> everyone, even those without racist views, perpetuates racism. Number three, the personal perception of the oppressed, their narrative, quote unquote narrative, that's important, their narrative, their story, what they think and feel outweighs the actions or intents of others. And I would even say outweighs the truth of Scripture in many Christian minds. Uh, number four, oppressed groups will never overcome disadvantages until the racist structures are replaced. So there has to be this um, upending of um, American life, society. Even the Constitution needs a new amendment, two new amendments actually offered to us by Ibram X. Kendi and his writings, two constitutional amendments to create a, uh, uh, another government um, uh, organization that will oversee fairness and equity and equality through uh, ex uh, constitutional fiat. And then number five, are we at number five? Yes, oppressor, race, or class groups never change out of altruism. They only change for self-benefit. Number six, application of laws and fundamental rights should be different based on the race or class group of the individuals involved. So basically it's racism. Basically it's racism. <laughs> That's what critical race theory is. It is the pendulum swinging from the racist history of America's past, slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, is swinging all the way and going past getting equality to now we're going to shift the pendulum to advantage those who were disadvantaged over here. Now, you can argue whether you believe that's right or wrong. That's your opinion. I don't think it's right. I think we're headed for disaster with this theory. I think it's going to really uh, tear the fabric of community apart within the culture. I do. Um, the last thing I want to say about social uh, critical race theories is, in short, critical race theory presupposes that everything about American society is thoroughly racist and minority groups will never be equal until American, American society is entirely reformed. Listen to that last line again. American society has to be entirely 
reform. So the problem is not racism. The problem is America. Uh, this is why uh, some politicians are talking about this, that we are being taught, our kids are being taught to hate their country. You know, you used to celebrate Columbus Day. We used to celebrate July 4th with the idea that July 4th celebrated the goodness of America. Now there's people who don't even celebrate July 4th. They think uh, Columbus was and is for all eternity this horrible, bigoted colonialist who destroyed lives. And yes, he did some awful things. Um, but now it is not just about revealing those facts. It's about tearing down the fabrics of our American society and all in the name of justice. So, so here's what, here's what Vody Bauckham writes in the book, because he says it better than I'm going to say it. He says it amazing, uh, in, uh, in, in the, in the, in the chapter on the new religious cult of wokeism or, um, anti-racism. He says, quote, this new cult has created a new lexicon that has served as scaffolding to support what has become an entire body of divinity. In the same manner, this new body of divinity comes complete with its own cosmology, CRT, original sin, racism, law, anti-racism, gospel, racial reconciliation, martyrs, uh, saints Trayvon, Mike, Mike Brown, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, etc., priests, who would be oppressed minorities, means of atonement, which would be reparations, new birth, which would be wokeness, liturgy, which is lament, uh, canon, CSJ social science, theologians, Robin D'Angelo, Ibram X. Kendi, Brown, Crenshaw, McIntosh, other, other writers, and catechism, quote unquote, say their names. We'll examine some of those topics in this chapter and a, later, and a few later on. You got to go read that, the book. You got to get the book. You got to read it. It's amazing. Here's what he says in the next paragraph. In case you're wondering about it, soteriology. By the way, soteriology is a fancy word. It's the theological word for the study of salvation. How do we get saved? So in case you were wondering about how we get saved, according to the cult of anti-racism, there is no salvation. He says, anti-racism offers no salvation, only perpetual penance in an effort to battle an incurable disease. <laughs> Uh, this guy is good. Uh, Vody Bauckham. And I've been a big fan, admirer of Vody Bauckham for many, many years. He's, he, he's kind of like me in his preaching. He says what's true regardless of people liking it or not. He's been doing this for years. He is a mighty man of God. I love the guy to death. This I, I someday hope to meet him. I just want to put, though, back up on the screen that um, cult of anti-racism list there. Just so, you know, screenshot that. Take, take a picture of that because that is basically... Uh, as clear as it gets. And, and he talks about a lot of these things in, and quotes so many sources. And then he exposes a lot of the lies of the anti-racist movement and, and Black Lives Matter in particularly. He is not a fan of Black Lives Matter. And, and uh, he talks about this in the book on, um, on a pretty heavy-handed uh, scale. Uh, you know, it is the cult, after all, of anti-racism. And so in any cult, you need um, scandal-ridden scandal mega-cult leaders. <laughs> in any cult, you need scandal-ridden mega-cult leaders. So the evangelical church has its scandal-ridden mega-pastors. Well, BLM has its scandal-ridden scandal mega-cult leaders. And one of them is the founder, Patrice Cullors, who has been on a house-buying spree. She's now bought her fourth house. She owns four. Uh, she's bought four since 2016. By the way, BLM started in 2014 with her and two others. And she's making a lot of money on this. And uh, BLM brought in $90 million, I think, in 2000, in the year 2000. And uh, she's out there buying homes. So she just bought a $1.4 million home in a, in a highly white 
uh, area called Topanga Canyon in Los Angeles. Um, it has a guest house. I, I have no problem, by the way, with Patrice Cullors making money. If you want to give her your money, if you want to send her money to the Black Lives Matter organization and she makes money off you, God bless her. You know, she's just doing her thing and she's fighting for what she believes in and she's making money doing it and she's buying homes. Got no problem with that. I do, however, have a problem with this when they say we are trained Marxists. And that's exactly what she said. We are trained Marxists. That's when I have a problem when, when, when they make money. Because what is a Marxist? A Marxist believes no one should own any property except the government. So you see how this works? A Marxist only believes that the government should have money and should have property. And now she's out there buying $1.4 million homes. And this is, this is what happens when you give people power in the name of a religion. This is what happens. Real Clear Politics reports that she has um, taken in through the donations of Black Lives Matter $90 million. But Michael Brown Sr. has come out. This is a uh, father of Mike Brown, who was shot in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, he has only received $500 from BLM affiliates. $500, Michael Brown Sr. And he said these words, quote, Why hasn't my family's foundation received any assistance from this movement? How could you leave the families who are... Uh, helping the community without any funding. So even the father of one of the key stories, all right, the, the, the men who, who, who make up the key stories to the Black Lives Matter movement is starting to question the finances of the Black Lives Matter organization. Uh, this also from Yahoo News. Uh, Brianna Taylor's mother blasts Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, these are her words from a now-deleted Facebook post. She said, I have never personally dealt with Black Lives Matter Louisville and have personally found them to be a fraud. Uh, she wrote on her Facebook page, I could walk in a room full of people who claim to be here for Brianna's family who don't even know who I am. And she criticized people who have raised money for Mrs. Taylor's family without knowing them, saying, I've watched y'all raise money on behalf of Brianna's family, and you, don't even ha and you haven't done a damn thing for us, nor have we needed it. So talk about fraud. That's what's happening right now in the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, now lest you think that I'm talking about all this stuff because I think racism isn't a thing. I am not saying it because I think racism isn't a thing. I absolutely see that racism is a thing. And so does Vody Bakum Jr., by the way. He writes, racism is real and it is alive and well in America. Amen. It is. It is a stain on our country. It is godless. It is sin. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And that's why I say read the book. He says, I have said as much for many pulps on many occasions. Remember, my target here is the notion that inequity must equal injustice. It is this notion that undermines efforts to bring law and gospel to bear in the lives of those categorized as oppressed as well as those categorized as oppressors. I can do, I can and do look injustice in the eye and call it what it is. It is my duty as a herald of God's world, word. In this case, however, the injustice I see is the false witness bearing Marxist ideology promoting gospel perverting theology, uh, gospel perverting ideology, sorry, my screen is going crazy here, of critical race theory and its offshoots. Vody Bakken Jr., that's uh, in the book. Look, guys. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. Okay. I hate racism. I believe it's exists. I, I believe it exists. I believe it always exists. It's probably going to exist until Jesus comes again. That's the sad part. For some stupid reason, we find the most insane ways to look down our nose at other people, whether it be where they live uh, the, uh, or, or what they do for a living or how they vote or the color of their skin. We just have this awful habit of being sinners. But Christians, we cannot afford to be ignorant of what's really going on in the cult of anti-racism. The corruption is there. 
Okay, and instead of just trying to jump on the bandwagon, as a lot of young pastors are doing, guys that I know, guys that I respect, guys that I used to look up to, honestly, they're jumping on this bandwagon, not even realizing that they're jumping onto CRT, not even realizing that they're just falling, they're leading the, 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 the people into a false narrative, a false gospel narrative. We've got to be aware of this and not jump on this bandwagon in the name of being accepted by culture. This is really what it is. It's a temptation for these young pastors to be accepted by culture because, oh, this message will resonate. Well, you'll like what I say if I talk about racism. I'll say a lot about that. And, and this is why I resist to talk about it because I don't want to say what people want me to say. I want to say what God's word says. I got myself a big Bible because I believe this is bigger than your opinion. <laughs> I want to say what the scripture says. And, and, and we've got to be aware that, that this is going to grow and grow and grow in our society because it's being instituted from a governmental level. And really the underpinnings are Marxism, the elimination of private property and private business. That's really what it comes down to, comes down to because America is so racist and needs to be completely obliviated and, and replaced, obliterated and replaced with a socialistic utopia. That's really the underpinnings of this movement. And we're going to lose a lot and everybody's going, especially the people who need it the most are going to lose the most in this movement. We've got to remember too, as Christians and proper biblical theologians, that the only reconciliation that makes possible any reconciliation between you and me is the reconciliation of our hearts to the Father. If we don't have that reconciliation, no amount of anti-racism is ever going to bring us together. It is only as a, as a Christian minister, I have, I have then an, a biblical mandate, a God-given directive to tell you that in, unless you are born again, your heart cannot be changed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Unless you are born again, you will fall for every wind of doctrine and cunning devices of men. You know, that's why Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 4. There's, there's cunning doctrines of men. And, and to, to Timothy, he says they're doctrines of demons that divide us and separate us. And the reality is critical race theory is a moneymaker for certain people. And it is a foundations destroyer for this country, which is the least racist country in the world. I, I agree America's got some racism in it, but it's got the least amount of racism in any country across the world. I, 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 I challenge anyone to offer me evidence otherwise. Anyway, this uh, CRT is being propagated by mega corporations, education, federal government, and now is even seeping into the church as woke pastors tell their predominantly white congregations that they need to feel guilt for being white. They need to wake up to the true original sin of racism and repent for benefiting from a system of white supremacy. I will admit that there is one privilege in this country. There is one privilege. It's not white privilege. I will admit it. And by the way, I'm a benefactor of this privilege. You know what privilege I want to talk about, which I, which I will agree with? It's the privilege of being raised by a loving mother and father who are still married. That, my friend, is privilege. And I have a boatload of that. I thank God for my mother and father staying together. They love Jesus. They love me. They're still married. And they, were fan they are fantastic parents. That is privilege. And it doesn't matter what color of skin you come from. If you have a loving mother and father who love Jesus, you are a member of the privileged class. And so I'm not against talking about privilege, but let's talk about the right privilege. You know what really destroys families? You know what really destroys economies? You know what really destroys a family's wealth? Divorce, adultery, sexual morality. That's why there is a higher level of warning in the scriptures for sexual morality from Genesis to Revelation. Not, not racism. Racism's evil. 
But when we step outside of marriage, when we decided to redefine the family, when we decided to destroy children in their mother's womb, when we, destroy, when, 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 when we take uh, fathers and sons and separate them uh, through abusive labor practices, when we, when we, when we undermine the, the, uh, the cultural mandate of male-female relationships for life, when that foundation is destroyed, all society suffers along with it. And so if you want to talk about privilege, let's talk about the privilege that we can all aim to achieve. Building a house with a mother and a father and children and staying together through the thick and thins of life, through the tough trials and mountain peaks of life and and saying we are going to love each other because we promise to love each other, not because we feel like loving each other. That, my friend, will create privilege for you and your children for generations. And as I like to tell my church, you can be 100% politically correct and 100% anti-racist and still go to hell. You can. You can give all your money to people of color or disadvantaged people and still go to hell because the only reconciliation that really matters for your eternal salvation is the reconciliation of your heart to the Father's. That, my friend, is the truth, and that is what Vodi Bakum talks about in this book. And I, I, I implore you, go get the book. You will not be disappointed. Read it. You need to know it. You need to see the lies that have been propagated in our society. You need to see why these things matter and why truth is being cast into the streets, as Isaiah said. The scripture says that the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? We've got to fight for these foundations and we've got to stand strong for truth. It's not going to be easy. People will think we're racist. People will call us names. So what? Love your enemies. Love those who persecute you and hate you and revile you because great is your reward in heaven. Matthew chapter 5. Amen. Well, that's the news. That's the book review. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's get into the life of David. Okay, today's episode, Undeserved Favor for Sinners. Undeserved Favor for Sinners. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Why am I so concerned with the cult of anti-racism in this country? Because it undermines the gospel of God's grace. It does. The theology of original sin is undermined by the theology of racism. Uh, as Racism is replacing original sin. And, and most of all, it seeks to fix the human condition with a new form of works righteousness, of never-ending penance and posturing in the name of skin color. We need to get back to the true issue of our hearts and lives, the true issue of our fallenness, so that we can get back to the real answer to the real problem. That's why I get so fired up about talking about things that undermine the gospel. The gospel's always going to be undermined by some cultural narrative. Look, in the, in the 1900s, the gospel was undermined by progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity, that removed the, the miracles from the Bible and basically told an entire generation, just be good. That's what God wants you to do. Just be good. Don't worry about the miracles. Don't worry about the healings. Don't worry about the demons. That's, that's just fables. That's just fables. Don't worry. This was liberalism in the, in the 20th century. And, and there was great theologians who stood for truth and were hated for it. And they, they said, no, these are true scriptures. These are true stories. And, and now, by the way, if we don't have miracles in the Bible, then the resurrection is not a miracle. It's not a reality. And if the resurrection is not a reality, 1 Corinthians 15 says your whole faith is useless and you're still dead in your sins. So just give up. We've got to believe, we've got to fight for the faith. Jude 1, I, I, I implore you to contend for the faith. And in every generation, there's going to be some narrative that tries to undermine the gospel of God's grace. In, in the late part of the 20th century, my, my teenage and 20-year-old uh, years, 
the, the undermining narrative was the, the gospel of self-improvement, the gospel of the good life, you know, and it's still out there, the prosperity gospel, and, 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 it's, and it's less uh, ostentatious, ostentatious um, subcategories where really the Bible is just a manual for how to get the good life, and if you just follow the, the prescription, you're going to get the goodies from God, and that's, that's really not Christianity. That's just sanctified selfishness. That's just using the Bible to get what you want out of life. And so in the late part of the 20th century, it was the um, personal improvement gospel. And, and then now in the 21st century, I say there's two attacks on the true gospel. There's the uh, gospel of um, self-actualization. Uh, let me see how I can find my best life through the Bible. How can I actualize my dreams and my plans and my vision from my life through the Bible? How can God be my spiritual personal assistant to help me become the person that I want to be? And then the cult of anti-racism, which completely annihilates true biblical doctrine, original sin, salvation by grace, uh, the, the reality that all men are sinners. I mean, it undermines everything that is true to the gospel. And, and yes, it is possible to say racism is sinful and Jesus died to forgive you of your racism. Yeah. In, in addition to your lust, your pride, your jealousy, your bitterness, your covetousness, okay? All these sins are what Jesus came to die for. And we have got to get back to, as theologians and pastors, we've got to get back to identifying the real problem so that we can point people to the real solution. As Jeremiah said in his day that the, the prophets healed the wound of God's people lightly. They didn't address the real problem. They tried to slap social programs on fixing their society. They slap social gospel stuff onto the <clears throat> onto the hearts of the people. And, and all they did was they went further and further into disrepute and disobedience and idolatry. We get back to the true gospel because the gospel is the only thing that breaks the power of idolatry in our hearts. So we come to this moment in 1 Samuel chapter, oh, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 9. You got to go there with me because it's about a guy named Mephibosheth. <coughs> Mephibosheth. And David, King David, who uses his privilege and his power in the right way. Okay, let's go to the text. Uh, 2 Samuel 9, 1. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Okay, so David does something here right off the bat. He seeks to show kindness to Jonathan's son, Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. Saul was his former enemy. That's the headline. David seeks to reconcile with his enemy. This is important because this passage is about the gospel. And what does he say? He says, is there anyone left that I may show him kindness? Kindness in the Hebrew scripture here is chesed. There is no um, good English translation of that word. It is translated loving kindness, loyal kindness, uh, covenant love. It is here is translated kindness, okay? But chesed, there's no one English word that wraps up what this word is about in the original language. What I'm trying to tell you here is that David 
seeks to bless Mephibosheth with a godlike love. Okay? He seeks to bless his enemy with godlike love. This is the theme of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, now really, I want to I want to give us some cultural context why this passage matters. What is going on in the world? What is going on with CRT? What is going on with the um, intensified racial uh, animosity in our country? And what's what's going on too, by the way, with the calls for socialism on the political spectrum and, and the calls for you know equality and equity and all these things? Uh, the, the world's problems really are usually summed up uh, in one in one issue, and that is powerful people using their power to serve themselves instead of others. That really is, if I, would just, if I was to give any credence to social theology, it would be that, that people in power don't care about those who don't have power, they care about their power. This is why uh, the United States Congress will never vote for term limits. They will never vote for term limits because they are consumed with their own power and keeping it. And anywhere in history, everywhere in history, wherever people who were in power uh, did not use their power for helping those out of power. Uh, people suffered. The, the the number one the number one uh, purpose of power in a person's hand is to execute justice and righteousness and equity for God's people. There's this beautiful psalm. It's called Psalm 72, written by Solomon. Solomon, one of the richest, probably the richest king that ever lived. And he says this in Psalm 72, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and, the, and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people in the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. The purpose of power in the scripture is to love those who have no power. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we are getting a beautiful picture of the righteous use of power. David uses his power to bless and love his, and reconcile his enemies, and he is pointing to Jesus, the ultimate powerful one, who uses power to love and bless his enemies, you and me. <laughs> and we have a clear representation also of what every Christian should seek to do with their power and their opportunity that God gives them. Don't use it to bless yourself. Use it to help and empower other people. That's what power and authority are really meant for. And every societal problem is rooted in the fact that powerful people are more concerned with holding on to their power than helping people. Now remember that David, at the end of chapter um, 8 in 2 Samuel, it says this, he reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity, justice and equity to all his people. This is the right use of power. And now we're having a picture of this use of power in he decides to show kindness to his enemy, King Saul's grandson, this guy named Mephibosheth. Let's get back into it. Verse 3 of 2 Samuel 9. And the king said, Is there not someone still in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? This is he, He's talking to Ziba. And Ziba said to the king, There is still the son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, uh, Ziba mentions this guy, uh, this son. His name is Mephibosheth. We're not going to see his name just yet. We'll see it later on. Uh, and he doesn't use his name here, but he the, the name has already been given to us uh, a few chapters earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Look what it says here. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as, he, as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. All right. This is important. This is important. 
This is the picture we are provided of Mephibosheth. He was born to the family of Saul. He didn't choose that. He didn't make it happen. He didn't join Saul. He was born under Saul. That made him a natural born opponent of David. Okay, are you following this? A natural born opponent of David. Number two, he was orphaned in a split second. Back to the scripture. When Saul and Jonathan, when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, what happened in Jezreel? That's 1 Samuel chapter 30, when Saul and Jonathan are both killed in the battle of Jezreel. And guess what that means? His father and grandfather die. And all rights of the family went through the fathers in those days. And so he has nothing left. He's got no one. He's basically orphaned and broke and poor. So he's alone in the world. He's got no family. Number three, he was dropped by someone trying to rescue him. Look at it. Uh, his nurse took him up and, and fled in her haste. She, he fell and, and, and became lame. So he is, he is crippled through no fault of his own. Someone trying to help him actually damaged him. Someone trying to help him actually damaged him. And he was damaged by the mistakes of someone else. Are you following this? Because this is so important because this is a picture of our salvation. Mephibosheth was a natural born enemy of the king. He was an orphan loner and he was a disabled dependent. He was a disabled dependent. This is the picture of the human condition. We cannot afford to miss this because it underscores the tr our true state before the Father, okay? Our true state before the Father. We are born in the wrong family. We are born separated from the Father. We are spiritually lame because of the sin of Adam. And we are enemies of God from birth. I don't want you to miss this. Your problem is the way you were born, period. In the words of the great theologian, Lady Gaga, you were born this way and you are born wrong. So was I, by the way. I'm not just talking about you. This is the condition of, human man, of, of the, human, uh, the human community. Born of sin, okay, that's Psalm 51, verse 5. I was brought forth in iniquity. My mother conceived me in sin. We are, spirit, we are spiritually lame. This is Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we always lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were born spiritually lame. We were born in spiritual sin. We were born spiritually lame. And it all happened because of Adam. Because of Adam's willful disobedience in the Garden of Eden, we all suffer original sin. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are Mephibosheth. You got it? This is our natural born condition. And so we are born at odds with God. We are born rebellious. We are born uh, inclined to do things that destroy us. This is why you keep on sinning. This is why no one can stop someone else from sinning, really. You can, you can stop them from doing it physically, but you can't stop them from doing it intellectually, mentally, or emotionally. <sighs> you were born that way. Your pride, your arrogance, your hostility, your hatred, your lying, your stealing, your adulterating mind is the product of your natural birth. You and I and every human being on earth is born with a sin nature. We are prone, as the old song says, prone to wander, drawn to sin. We cannot help it. And without the intervention of God, none of us can change. None of us. Okay, this is so important. I just, I hope you see the picture here that's painted for us. Mephibosheth is us. And he lived in Lodabar. Why is that important? Because Lodabar means without pasture, not a word, or nothing. 
that's who we are. We are, think about what is a, what is a, the scripture calls us sheep. What is a sheep without a pasture? Sheep without a pasture is homeless. That's, that's what we are. We are spiritually homeless without Jesus. That's why you feel homeless right now. That's why if you're out of sight, out of Christ, if you're not a Christian, you feel disconnected. Spiritually, something's missing, an emptiness, a quote-unquote hole in your heart. That's the spiritual disconnection that exists when we don't have a family in Christ. So it goes on in verse 5, and it says this, The king said, "Then I'm sorry, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amelial, and Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now, now we get his name. His name's interesting. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Okay. What does that mean? It means man of shame. Well, I'm sorry. It means destroying shame. I'm sorry. I'm messing up right here. Okay. I'm going to get to a point. Mephibosheth means destroying shame. It's important that you see that because uh, um, Saul had another son named Ishbosheth who died in 2 Samuel 4. He was assassinated by two of his generals. Remember that from a few episodes back? His name was Ishbosheth. His name Ishbosheth means man of shame. Man of shame dies. David rescues and redeems and restores Mephibosheth, destroying shame. These names are important because they're actually showing us the theological underpinnings of this chapter. It's really kind of cool. Let's go to verse seven. And David said to him, do not fear. Now, why would he say do not fear? Because uh, it's very simple. Because Mephibosheth is a grandson of Saul, David's former uh, predecessor and former adversary. And so he's coming before the king who basically just overtook his grandfather's kingdom. And in those days, in the ancient world, when you overtook a king, you purged his family. You killed every offspring so there would be no coup. There would be no uprising or rebellion. That's what David is expected to do according to ancient traditions. But he says to Mephibosheth, do not fear. I'm not against you, Mephibosheth. I am not here to destroy you. Do not fear. What does he say? For I will show you kindness, chesed, for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your father, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Whoa, this is not normal. This is not what, what kings in the ancient world did. David is not a normal king. And he's pointing to the true not normal king, Jesus Christ. Now you have to remember he says this, uh, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. And that's important because if you remember back in 1 Samuel 18 and 1 Samuel 23, Saul and uh, Jonathan and David made this covenant. And they loved each other as brothers, closer than brothers really. They loved each other. Uh, d- devotedly, and 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 uh, and Jonathan promised always to t- watch out for uh, David, and David always uh, promised always to watch out for Jonathan. So, so for the sake of the covenant between Jonathan and David, David makes good on that covenantal promise and blesses Jonathan's son. Here's what that means for us: the father and the son made a covenant, and their covenant together is what we get in on through grace in Jesus Christ. That, the, I, I could go back to Genesis 15, the Abrahamic uh, Caesarean ritual, uh, you know, the covenantal cutting of the animals and, and the flaming uh, the fire torch and the, flame, uh, the hot oven walk through the two, the, the, the divided animal parts. We go through all of that. It's really a covenantal ceremony um, where God enacts this covenant with Abraham, but Abraham doesn't walk through 
the flaming torch and the oven pot walk through, a symbol of the Father and the Son coming through this this covenantal ceremony together. And through the line of Abraham comes Jesus Christ, the Son, who carries out the fulfillment of the covenant that God, Yahweh, made with Abraham. A lot of theology there. What I'm basically just going to boil it down to is this, that the covenantal promise of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father is what we get in on through Jesus Christ. We receive all that he has. We receive all that he gets. We receive all that he owns. We are joint heirs with Christ because he is our true David who restores us to what we lost through sin. It's just powerful. It's just powerful. David says, I will restore all. I will restore all of your father's land. Okay, let's continue. And he paid homage, verse 8, and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now, that is a response of worship. (laughs) That is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Like, who am I, God? Who am I? And, And true Christian worship is just that. It is awe to God. It is, God, I can't believe you love me. Why should you love me? I What do I have to offer you? It is the people who think that God owes them that, that are going to be rejected. It is the people who think that it, God is, you know, beholden to them because they are good people that are going to be rejected. It is the people who are going to say to Jesus on the day of judgment, did we not, did we not, did we not cast out demons, perform miracles, prophesy your name, and Jesus is going to say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. You think that your good works produced a resume that I am beholden to. That's not how it works. I save by grace through faith alone, period, end of story. Anyway, going on in the story, verse 9 says, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. This is Ziba. He's saying, Ziba, basically, you're going to be working now. Verse 10, And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him in the produce that your, ma- that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. That's 35 people. He's basically having a 35-people workforce from Ziba. Uh, from David through Ziba. Now, let's recount what David now has done from Mephibosheth. He's given him back the land of Saul. Okay, that represents opportunity. This is what God gives us. He gives us opportunity. He gives us the richness of our inheritance, our opportunity in Christ. Number two, he gave him a place at his table. That's relationship. What does God give us in Christ? Opportunity, relationship. Number three, he gives the authority over uh, Ziba's household Uh, That's called responsibility. So he's been given what? Three things. Opportunity, relationship with David, and responsibility over all the house of Saul. Authority, you could say. And what you see is that David does not just give Mephibosheth a payoff. He does not just give him, you know, governmental assistance. He says, I'm going to give you opportunity. I'm going to give you a relationship with me. I'm going to give you responsibility. This is what Jesus does for us. He doesn't just hand us money. He doesn't just bless us with stuff. He gives us authority, relationship, and opportunity. That's what we have in Christ. You've got to do something with it. You've got to move. Yeah, I read that in a book somewhere. You've got to move. This is all a picture of what God has done for us. Paul unpacks this in the epistles all over the place. First, uh, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, spiritually lame, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved uh, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Or Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespass and sin. You were spiritually lame, born in the wrong family, born the wrong way. You walked this way. You followed the course of this world. You were just like everybody else. 
but God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, because of his chesed, (laughs) he loved us with that. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Are you picking up on a theme here? You can't save yourself. You're dead, spiritually speaking, without Christ, without God. Salvation is all God, none you. That's the fact. That's the biblical, theological fact of your salvation. You did not save yourself. You did not come to Christ. He came to you. He found you. He was searching for you. Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 14. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Friends, listen to me. It wasn't that you needed improvement. You were dead because you cannot improve a dead person. You can only resurrect a dead person. You were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with him, forgave all your trespasses, canceled the record of that debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can I tell you honest biblical truth? And I know the episode's going long and I'm not done. I just, I'm enjoying it. I hope you are too. But here's the thing. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. You are a failure before God. Now don't feel bad. We all are. (laughs) We all are. You're prideful. You're resentful. You're jealous. You're bitter. You're lustful. You're vengeful. You're a miserable, miserable wretch in need of salvation. And the good news is that you are loved by your father in heaven who reached down when you didn't deserve it and weren't looking for it and brought you back to himself. See, if we don't talk about the real problem, we'll never discuss the right solution. This is why we've got to watch out for cultural narratives that seek to subvert the gospel, aka CRT, uh, the social gospel, the mainline no miracles gospel, the self-improvement gospel, the get ahead gospel, whatever, the prosperity gospel. We've got to, uh, we've got to identify the cultural narrative, dismantle it, and then represent the gospel So that people realize the true problem. I'm racist because I'm a sinner. I'm vengeful because I'm a sinner. I'm bitter because I'm a sinner. Okay. I'm not a sinner because I'm a racist. That's a key. That's a key order of wording. I'm not a sinner because I'm racist. I'm racist because I'm a sinner. I'm bitter because I'm a sinner. Sin is a condition, not an action. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a situation in the heart. And here's the solution. God saves sinners. He searched for you. He came to get you. He came to rescue you. He brought you to himself. Mephibosheth wasn't looking for David. He was hiding from David because David should have killed him. David looked for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth didn't deserve David's kindness. He got it because David was gracious. Mephibosheth did not instigate all of this reconciliation. David did. The same is true for you in Christ. You didn't look for Jesus. He looked for you. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Who's the lost? You are. Who's the seeker? Jesus is. Where? What did you have to do with it? Absolutely nothing. And that's hard for modern Americans to get. It's so hard because we want some, something to boast about. We want to say, oh, I did it. I did it. I believed. I said the prayer. I got baptized. I was a good person. Nope. God found you. God saved you. God redeemed you. God restored you. 
And, 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 and by the way, you know, that passage, Luke 19, 10, that's a passage where Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house. Who was looking for Zacchaeus? Jesus was looking for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus because he was enamored with the spectacle that was Jesus. But Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I must go to your house today. I'm coming for you. You think you're coming for me? I'm coming for you. And then Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Lord, I give half my possessions to the poor. And uh, I pay back double four times to anyone else who has wronged me. Because Jesus found him. Okay, he wasn't trying to... He wasn't trying to uh, create reparations. <laughs> I've, I've heard now Luke 19 is now preached for a, a, a theological basis for reparations. This is ridiculous. Um, no, that's not the main idea. That's not what happens in the text. What happens is Jesus finds someone who he was looking for to save and to bring back to himself. And it does produce a free will offering to those that he wronged, and it does produce a free will giving to those that he wronged, and it should do that in your life. But you've got to read the text for what it's actually trying to teach, not turn it into some kind of works righteousness manifesto wherein if we are pro-giving our money away, then we are saved. No, if we are saved, we will give. It is not we give and therefore are saved, it is we are saved and therefore we give. It is so important that we get these orders right. These are not just phrases. These are not just lines. These are theological constructs that shape who we are. Let's get on with the passage. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Now, uh, one thing I just want to say about this is that he had a son, so he was married, and he lived uh, at a place called, um, oh, what was the name of the place? Machir's house. Uh, I only bring that up to say this. Mephibosheth was not dirt poor. He was actually probably doing somewhat well for himself. Maybe he leveraged his father's name to you know, secure a nice house with uh, Machir and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the point I'm just trying to make is I don't want you to think that he was desperately poor and that's the only reason why he was honored to be received by David. No, the reason why I bring that up is because sometimes people think, oh, the gospel is only for the poor. No, it's for everyone, even the people who have their act together, even the people who are not in destitute circumstances, okay? It's for everyone, the rich, the poor, and everyone in between. Okay, the last verse of the text, verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And the scripture wants us to know that he's at the king's table, but he was still lame in his feet. And when you sit at the table of Jesus, all the lameness, all the horrible things, all the bad things about you are now no longer present. They're no longer visible. Isn't, isn't that beautiful? There he is, Mephibosheth at the king's table, still lame, but righteous and accepted and restored. Uh, this is why Paul will sum up in Romans chapter 5, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sins, for the judgment following one, tr one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following man's trespasses brought justification. For if by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. We are joint heirs with Christ. 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you are, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no one may boast. We are, his God, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to understand that the story of Mephibosheth is your story. We are not David. We are Mephibosheth. We are, like Mephibosheth, number one, the king found us. Number two, the king declared us not guilty. Number three, the king restored us back to what we lost in the garden. And number four, the king returned us to our original design. That is the story of your life if you're in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to share your testimony? What does it mean to talk about who you are in Christ? I'm someone Jesus saved. I'm someone Jesus found. I'm someone Jesus forgave. I'm someone Jesus died for. I'm someone Jesus restored. I'm someone Jesus brought back to life again. And if he did that for me, I should be involved in doing it for others. Hey, that's the episode. Check us out at thedeepend.tv. Check us out on our social media pages. Check out the book. It's available now at amazon.com. Search Tim Hatch Move. You'll find it there or go to timhatchlive.com slash books. Check out the swag on thedeepend.tv. And uh, I hope you guys fill in the comments down below. What are the three items? What are the three items in the, the new items in the shelf of shame? Uh, if you can see them, I'm going to do it one more time. Here we go. Uh, there it is. Oop, no, there, <laughs> there it is on the shelf of shame. There are three new items. What are they from last episode to this episode? Fill that in below. The first person to get it right gets the deep end tumbler. Yeah, we're going to have fun with this. Thanks for watching. Thanks for being here. I look forward to seeing you next time on the deep end. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. The Deep End is brought to you by listeners and viewers just like you. Consider giving today. Hey, if you don't have a home church, come and check us out at one of our campuses. Visit waterschurch.org and you can find a time and location that fits your schedule. Tune in next week for The Deep End with Tim Hatch.